today's guest is Daniel Willingham, author of the new book, Outsmart Your Brain. I'm so excited for you to hear us talk about how we as teachers can help students to become successful, independent learners through things like supporting their focus, planning and goal setting, purposefully taking notes from listening or reading, and how to help them to best tackle and comprehend complex texts. Later, I'm joined by my colleagues Alicia Lee, Gina Dignan, Lainey Powell, and Macy Kerbs for a conversation about what we can bring to the classroom. This is To the Classroom, and I'm your host, Jennifer Saravallo. Dr. Willingham, welcome. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Um, I love your book. I read the whole thing, and I've already recommended it to uh, tutors in my town who work with high schoolers. Uh, I made my daughter read the procrastination chapter. She's a, she's a middle schooler about to go off to high school. It's just such a perfect book for this time. And I think there's so many kids and teachers that are going to benefit from reading it. So thank you for writing it. Oh, thank you so much. So essentially, it's about how to become a successful, independent learner. And the majority, I think, of your audience is college students, high school students, um, a little bit. Also, you have tips for instructors. And I'm thinking, too, from the perspective of an elementary, middle school teacher, what responsibility do you feel like we have, elementary, middle school teachers, in supporting students with some of the tips or strategies that you have in your book to build independent learning so that they're more prepared for um, the ex independence that's expected later on in school? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a great um, that's a great question because it seems self-evident that it would not be a great situation if uh, it was sort of like if you went from zero to 60, so to speak, in terms of responsibilities. And so you want to be sort of back planning. I was actually just thinking this morning, it would be an interesting experiment to have like a pre-K or K teacher sit in a grade 12 classroom and just jot down notes of mm. like what wouldn't work in my class. Um, things like being able to sustain attention on teacher talk for as long as these students are being asked to, uh, being able to commit things to memory uh, and, and so on. And then just ask yourself when during these students' education were they taught how to do this? Have they ever been taught any, any strategies for regulating their attention and listening to teacher talk and so on? We might even think about... Um, looking even earlier uh, for sort of scaffolded steps that are aimed at something a little bit down the road. So uh, people are very aware of this with reading instruction that we uh, very early on, we show children like this is how, you know, before children are able to read, we're teaching them some aspects of how uh, sort of metacognitive aspects of how one um, engages with books. Right, so you can imagine students getting some uh, practice with that. Uh, when it comes to focus, uh, making children aware of the um, the effects their environment has on their focus. So, sort of pointing out to them, it's like, yeah, when uh, when I notice that when you sit next to Jen, like you're you seem to have a much harder time uh, listening when we're doing read alouds, like, you know, tell me what's, you know, what's going on with that and why, you know, get them to reflect on the fact that they're, that, um, attention is not just a matter of this sort of internal trying to pay attention. You're also very much affected by your environment and you can choose environments that will help you, uh, focus more effectively. 
So big picture, I think if we look for opportunities, we're going to see them when they come and sort of think about what the uh, the building blocks are for these more demanding tasks that students are going to have to do uh, starting in middle and high school. Yeah. And I think what's so important and powerful about the book is that sometimes the things that we're asking kids to do later on are just expected of them. But what you're really doing in the book is you're teaching them how to do it, right? You're teaching them the actual steps they need. And so I think about this as an elementary middle school educator and say, we can be explicit and teach kids how to choose a good spot, block out distractions, maintain focus, notice when your mind is wandering, all these things that you talk about um, for older students. I think some of them work really well in the elementary middle school classroom as well. I, I absolutely think they do. And, and again, I think the, the, the guide should be sort of look at what the expectations are uh, of your students and then you know, determine if they're, if they're not meeting those expectations, is it because no one's ever, ever taught them how to do these things? And this is not to uh, deny that this is, this is challenging work. I mean, teaching students anything, anytime is always challenging. But this, this is, I think, especially challenging exactly because there's not a, you know, a curriculum in place that you can turn to for advice. Yeah, it's not really in a lot of curricular, like larger curricular products because it's not really in standards. And yet, if we don't do this, then how are you going to do any of the other things that are required in the standards? If you can't block and, out and distraction I, and focus. It, implicitly, it is in standards, right? It's not, uh, you're not going to be tested on it, but you can't meet standards without these cognitive skills in place. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of one of these cognitive skills, um, your, your, your book is organized. Those who haven't had a chance to read it yet, it's organized into chapters that are like categories, like taking notes, preparing for a test, staying focused. And within each goal, you offer these tips that they can work on. And later in the book, you talk about the importance of goal setting, planning, goal monitoring, and making sure you really have a purpose for your learning. Um, and I'd love to start with talking about that because I think it's really foundational to everything in the book in a way. What is, um, what is your reading of the, of the research around this area say about the importance of goal setting, planning, and goal monitoring? For short-term goals, there's lots of empirical work. For something like goal setting in reading, we know that you actually read content differently if you have different goals in mind. If you're thinking, I'm reading this for pleasure or I'm reading this not to really understand the whole thing. I'm kind of on the hunt for you know, a particular fact because I'm doing a research paper. It won't surprise anyone that you end up with a different understanding of the text depending on what the goal is. And then for the longer term goals, there's very little empirical work. And it's sort of understandable why that is. Um, that would be very challenging research to do. But uh, I do think that it's a big issue for a lot of the students that I encounter in higher education. They just never think about what their educational goals are. I also love that you have an entire chapter devoted to staying focused, which I think feels harder now than ever for a lot of adults that I even talk to. I'm just wondering what tips you have from your study of the science to help get our minds into that engaged state while we're reading or while we're studying. So let me, let me start by uh, offering some general strategies, some of which will be familiar and a couple of which might not. One is I, I 
show this little model in the, um, which is, I, I say a little model, but it's really a quite nice model from uh, Jim Gross at Stanford and, and Angela Duckworth at University of Pennsylvania of sort of the process by which distraction happens. Uh, and one of the things that uh, I have found useful is that the students readily understand this very simple model. It helps students sort of think through what, what, what is the process of distraction and why it's so much easier to be in a place that just simply doesn't have the distractions compared to being in a place that has distractions, but I'm going to overcome them mentally. But when it comes to distraction, one of the most important things to communicate to students is not to choose to be distracted because very high proportions of students report that they do other things while they're doing, you know, for homework and, and other sorts of more serious pursuits. They'll have music on, they'll have video content on, they'll be texting friends and so on. Uh, and trying to multitask is one of those things where it, it, uh, your brain deceives you. I mean, there's, there's a reason the book is titled Outsmart Your Brain, uh, because your brain sends you a lot of signals that are a little bit confusing about what's going on. And one of them is things are going just fine if I have this video content on because I'm really just ignoring it. It's kind of background noise. And what laboratory studies show is nobody can do this. I have never seen a, uh, a study that shows people perform just as well at reading or you know doing math problems or whatever it is while video content is playing in the background. So those are pretty typical advice, but let me let me mention one or two things that um, you don't see quite as often. One skill that I think is important to develop is judgment about when you should, uh, as I put in the book, either regroup or just move on. Sometimes distraction it comes because you're just not making much headway on whatever it is you're working on. And so regrouping means taking a step back and saying, why is it I'm having so much difficulty in making any progress on this? So I'll do this frequently when I'm writing. I'll think why, you know, I've been trying for a half an hour to come up with any idea for the introduction is why is this so hard for me? And sometimes I really get an insight and I think of a different way to approach the task. Um, other times I don't. And, and what I do then is I say, I need to work on something else for a little while and come back to this fresh. Because, uh, so again, the big message here is distraction is sometimes a signal to you. Uh, this particular thing you're working on is just not going very well. And you need to sort of get yourself out of this. I am thinking again with my elementary teacher uh, hat on. I, you know, I taught in New York City. My class size was 32, 33 kids. How do kids set themselves up to be as focused as they can, to be as successful as they can, to engage with their work and kind of get into that zone when they're working in a classroom setting? So there are a couple of things that occur to me. One, is you know, the most obvious is uh, to the extent that it's possible, classroom norms are ones that will minimize distraction. Mind wandering can happen. and. Uh, Having a to-do list really helps. So if I'm, you know, working on writing something and the thing I'm writing is more than, you know, a paragraph or two and it's a little bit complicated, I will break it down. It's like I'll, I'll have a thing I'm going to brainstorm first and then I'm going to think about whether all the sources that I need to include are really included and so forth. 
Uh, and that way, when I finish one little bit, I know exact. I know where to go next. I just look at my list and see what I'm supposed to do next. And I find that helps me stay on task. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm thinking about this mind wandering. We've been talking a lot about external distractions, right? The noise in the classroom, the physical space, the things you yeah. see, the things you hear. But our own minds naturally wander, especially if we're thinking about, I, I think with writing, it's a creative process. So a lot of times you have to let your mind kind of go places to kind of decide what is it that I want to say or how do I want to say it? So our minds are naturally wandering, sometimes in a productive way, sometimes in an unproductive way. And you have mm -hmm. some tips for helping besides the to-do list. Anything else you want to share to help with that kind of wrangling your mind back to the task at hand? Yeah. I mean, so sh sh to sharpen the to-do list also, I mean, that what, what, what that's really about is the, uh, whether or not the goal is well-defined. I think the clarity of the goal really contributes to that because not knowing where you're going is when your mind is likely to, uh, drift away. There are two other, uh, bits of standard advice that are, uh, for which there's a lot of empirical evidence. One is taking breaks does help with mind wandering, kind of as we would expect when you come back from a break, there is sort of a mental sharpness and a um, uh, ability to stay on task that uh, that is renewed. I'll also mention there's been a lot of research on whether there is an optimal ratio of like, how long do you work before you take a break? And then once you take a break, how long should the break be? There's no consistent evidence that there's uh, a ratio or a set figure for either one of those that um, that's better than another. There's also been a lot of work on exactly what you should do during the break that's also inconsistent. Um, my take in the book is what I say is a, a break should feel like a break. So if you're coming back from a break after three or five minutes and you feel like that didn't feel like a break, then you know you need to try doing something else during your break. What people most often do is go on their phone. And that's kind of vexed. In, in cognitive terms, you know, I would say like that's probably not a great thing to do because you're doing something that's kind of similar to what you were doing. It's very outwardly focused. So something that is more like taking a walk, like especially if you can walk outside, that's more inwardly focused. There are separate attention systems for outward focused work and inwardly focused work, and they they toggle one or another is on, but they they still affect one another. So giving yourself a break from outwardly directed attention is probably a good idea. The other thing that I'll mention as standard advice for which there's lots and lots of evidence is uh, meditation does help in, uh, in um, maintaining focus. So that's something else that you could think about. A regular meditation practice so that you just regular meditation. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, that, you know, it's probably 10 years ago now that uh, various schools started experimenting with having kids do mindful meditation in classrooms. And candidly, when I first heard about that, I thought that was ridiculous. I thought like, that's for the parents. That's not, that's the kids aren't going to benefit from that. And that was, I was spectacularly wrong. Uh, uh, not only do, you know, children's engage in, children engage in this practice very successfully, uh, but also there's lots of evidence that they benefit from it. Thank you. Let's switch gears now. I'd love to talk with you about note-taking and writing about reading. You know, some kids 
fill their fill their notebooks with so many notes, it's got to be an interruption to getting into the flow of their reading, while other kids tend to just read without doing a lot of stopping and jotting. But the idea of pausing to write something and having writing be really purposeful, there's a reason why I'm stopping to write. What does yeah. my future me need this for? I think was yeah. really helpful. What do you think is is the balance that kids should strike between brevity when they're stopping and jotting so it's not interrupting the flow of reading too much and clarity so you can actually go back and understand and benefit from what you've written down? It's a great question. And I, I think it's a great opportunity to have a conversation with your class uh, about starting with why would you want to do this? Why would you want to take notes while you're reading? Uh, and there's surveys of middle schoolers, many of whom uh, I'm, I'm guessing probably never had that conversation with their teacher. And there are basically two reasons, uh, which I'll <laughs> clarify. Taking notes helps cement things in memory. So the process of taking notes helps you, you. You will remember them better by virtue of writing them down. And then also it's a reference for later. Uh, that you, if you don't remember everything perfectly, you're, you can go back and look at your notes and it jogs your memory. So middle schoolers are aware of this. And so I think the answer to your question is, well, it depends on what it is you're reading and what you're hoping to get out of it. So, uh, and you would adjust your note-taking strategy depending. So I think it's why, why I suggest this idea of uh, talking with students is, this should be a flexible strategy, and we want to get them to start thinking early on about why am I doing this and what's, my, what's the best way to do it here, rather than thinking there's a right way to do this, and you just always apply that one right way. That's good advice. How about um, note-taking systems, formats, graphic organizers? What does research say, and what's your advice about that? So research is not super helpful. So what, what research would say is note-taking systems are very helpful. But the way, if you look at the way the studies were done, they don't really answer the question we want answered. The way these studies are typically done is someone comes up with a note-taking system. So then we've got Willingham's magical note-taking uh, system. And then I compare, I, Willingham, compare Willingham's magical note-taking system uh, to no instruction at all. And what we find is, if you, if you are, are taught my system, you end up taking better notes and you know sometimes even you do better on quizzes or something like that. The problem is, if you've never had any instruction, it could be that it's, there's nothing very magical about Willingham's system. It's just getting people to think about taking notes and what, what those should look like in the process, that's accounting for all the effect. People, as we all know, both as students and as teachers, people are in mental overload pretty much constantly when they're taking notes, trying to juggle, whether it's reading or listening, new content that is complicated and you're trying to kind of learn and understand it. At the same time, you're making decisions about what to take notes on, how to phrase all that. Uh, and this is one of the reasons most people feel like my notes al almost always end up being incomplete. So adding on to that, now I want you to think about, you know, you're going to take a note, like where is it going to go? And, you know, how am I structuring this and all that? I don't think it's worth it. Interesting. 
have a whole chapter on the importance of organizing notes to go back to synthesize the information. So you've taken these notes and you're revisiting them um, and to find connections between the ideas when you were first taking the notes. I wonder if any of these ideas work well for the third through eighth grade range who are oh, organizing. I, you know, as, soon as, as soon as kids are taking notes, I think these ideas absolutely work. And probably, um, yeah, you would want to simplify it. I mean, again, the, the thing I would want children to understand, even at this very early grade, like whether you were taking notes from teacher talk or whether it was an activity that you did or whether it was um, uh, something you read, that thing, that, that, that information source was organized. It was planned. And so like there's, you should be able to see that organization in your notes like that's a really important part of it. Like the author thought about like the, the paragraphs aren't random, right? So the author was thinking about that. And so you want to be sure that's a, you know, that's part of it. And so you want to be sure that that's in your notes. Uh, I should say like that's part of it, but that's also the part that's probably the most difficult for you to get. So it requires special attention to be sure that you've gotten it. So, you know, however it's, it's framed, I think that's a, um, a vital lesson that, you know, a lot of college students don't know, but it's not beyond the understanding of, uh, you know, a child who's in third grade. That's the one, you know, the research around um, cluing kids into text structure, which I think would work as well for lecture structure. Like you said, the author or the speaker has an intended organization to how they're presenting the information. And if kids are aware, like this is a cause and effect structure, this is a dare to structure, this is a boxes and bullets structure, that helps them to comprehend it better. So it makes sense to me that teaching them some kind of note-taking system that sets them up to listen for the important information aligned to the way that the text is organized might support them. Just to reiterate, it's uh, the reason I recommend doing this after the notes are taken is it's too much to do, like yeah. as the, the organization is sort of emerging to you in real time. So you have a whole chapter on reading complex texts such as textbooks. You make the point that one of the reasons they are more challenging to read is that they're written with a hierarchical organization rather yeah. than a narrative organization or sequential organization. And you tell your readers um, that kids approaching these texts need a different approach. They take a different approach as they're reading it. What's the main difference in the ways readers should approach narrative versus expository texts? It depends. It, uh, it depends a little bit on what your goals are. Okay, let me start this way. Thinking, uh, let me let me divide reading comprehension uh, into sort of bare comprehension, where you understand most of the intended intended meaning, versus working with a text where you're doing some sort of textual analysis. Uh, the, the latter of these, you know, can be quite complex, obviously, um, uh, when we're talking about narrative. But when we're talking about just understanding kind of what happened, if it's a narrative, understanding the plot and sort of who was who and what happened, um, that's quite different. And the, this is what, what children come into pre-K already understanding, the vast majority of them understand a narrative structure. Um, and so that's a huge advantage um, as they get to the point where their decoding is fluent enough that they can really comprehend as they're reading or if they're, it's a read aloud and they're listening. 
So that's a, a big advantage to comprehension that suddenly disappears when that some of the text they're asked to read is no longer has that narrative structure. The other thing about narratives is a lot of them are fairly linear, especially ones in the earlier grades. They're not going to be flashbacks. I mean, not just temporally uh, linear, but also causally linear. A causes B, which causes C and so on. And so the demands of working memory are greatly reduced. Um, the, that, all of that, dis, none of that is true in a hierarchical structure where if you have a textbook where there's a chapter about plants and then the, you know, the first section is about leaves and then the second and so forth, uh, this is going to be hierarchically organized. And the thing about a hierarchical structure is as you get down to some of the details, you're being expected to understand how what I'm reading now relates to content that I read several paragraphs ago. And we know from research on not just on children in elementary, but through high school and into college, a lot of students do not do this coordination of meaning across paragraphs or is sometimes even across, frequently across sentences. Um, so there, it's a very clever experimental method, uh, the way they do this. They give kids paragraphs, some of which are just sort of normal paragraphs taken from textbook type materials that they would encounter. Uh, and then some of which are the same types of paragraphs, but they put an error in the paragraph. So sometimes they'll misspell a word. Sometimes they'll scramble words. So the syntax in a sentence doesn't make any sense. And sometimes they'll change one word in a sentence to completely reverse its meaning. They'll like include a not. And now sentence six in the paragraph directly conflicts something that was stated in uh, sentence two in the paragraph. What you find is college students in particular are, they never miss a misspelled word. They never miss a sentence that has messed up syntax, but they frequently miss uh, where sentence six directly conflicts with sentence two. So this is something we know that a lot of students are not very good at. Yeah, and I think, too, just seeing younger children, too, approaching these kinds of texts, they have they have to have flexibility when they get there. Like lots of times they'll come with a preconceived notion of of that what that topic's about or what they already know. And if something right. like you're talking about within paragraph uh, contradictions, but sometimes they'll approach a text and what the text says contradicts their background knowledge. And they tend to some, sometimes read the text to try to make it fit what they thought they already knew when really they yeah. have to be flexible. And yeah, there's a lot of challenges. Adults there. do the same thing. Oh, that's true. I'm, where, you know, yeah, this is actually relevant to exactly a course that I'm teaching at the University of Virginia right now. We're taught, it's a course in high-level cognition. And one, you know, we're all constantly faced with this. We're getting new information. And the question is, to what extent do you update what you already know? Mm. Sometimes what you see supports what you already know. Other times it doesn't. And so you have to make judgments. And knowing exactly uh, how that, what that judgment should look like is... Uh, can be complicated. It's fascinating because it's key to learning, right? That's what learning is going Taking in new information, revising what you thought before. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for your time today for this conversation. I, I have so many ideas about things that I can support younger children with so that I'm not going to say they won't need your book when they're older because hopefully they still read it too. Yeah. But they'll two copies, Jen. for sure. I'm not kidding when I say I'm, I'm getting this book for many people I know. It's a, it's a really great contribution. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure chatting with you. Likewise. Take care. Bye. All right, I've got a big group with me today. I've got Macy Curbs, Lainey Powell, Alicia Lee, and Gina Dignan for a conversation about how to take these ideas to the classroom. Who wants to get us started? I was kind of thinking about how you started your Getting Started chapter in the Reading Strategies 2.0, and you have this beautiful chart that outlines the different types of strategies on page two, and it talks about how there's cognitive strategies, metacognitive strategies, and the process strategies. Yeah, a lot of them are, are in that management strategy category, right? At least the first, the first part, portion of our conversation where we were talking about um, blocking out external distractions, anything having to do with other peers around you and how to manage um, your environment. I just made me think to, you know, when he was talking about the idea of classroom environment, what are the little things teachers can do that can have a large impact in terms of environment? And I remember very early on in my career, um, I learned to, maybe I learned this from you, Jen, that we, it's a really good practice that before students get come to the lesson for a rug, to the rug or to the meeting area, that they set up their materials at their seats before the lesson starts to get ready for the independent work after the lesson. And it seems like such a small shift, but I find in classrooms, I mean, when I started doing it, it was such a difference because this idea that the kids don't, when you move from the lesson to your independent work, the kids are not thinking, oh no, what book am I going to get? Oh, I left it in my backpack. Oh, it's lost in my desk. You do all of that before the period even starts. Yeah, that part when he was talking about how our mind tends to wander when we're transitioning between things. You think about how many transitions kids have to have in a day, especially in a self-contained elementary classroom. And those those support really is what that is. It's a support to help them transition smoothly and quickly and to be reminded as soon as I go back to my seat, I know what I'm supposed to be focused on. It gives them that help to, to not allow their mind to wander also having that goal when you go back. So like turn and talk to your partner about what you are going to be doing as a writer today or turn and talk about to your partner about your goal during reading time today. So just getting their intention set before the transition might be a good habit to get them into so that their mind is less likely to wander as much. Yeah, like you said, there's a lot of support for these ideas of short-term goals. What am I trying to accomplish today? What's my focus for today's work? Absolutely. I was thinking last night in anticipation of today, um, I was asking my kids, like, how do you focus during reading or writing time? Like, what are some things? If you could design the perfect classroom for you and you gave your teacher a list of tips on day one, what would it include? And my daughter said, I have to have flexible seating. And like, it has to be flexible. Like one day it might be a wobbly chair. One day it might be a beanbag. So it's not even the idea that Every day she gets a wobbly chair, but she's making choices about what kind of seating is going to be best for me today. My third grader said, 
noise-canceling headphones have made such a difference for him that he goes under a desk or somewhere in the room with headphones on, and that is where he does his best work. And so I think to your points about like having goals, like um, jointly mapped out goals with kids, and then those how-to parts in place, and that looks different across. Like we could all have a goal of engagement, but those how-tos are going to look very different for different children. Um, so being nimble in what independent practice looks like as teachers, I think, is really important. Yeah, I want to pick up on something you said too, Lainey, about the idea of the individual nature of these. I think if you're having long stretches of independent time, you want to allow for kids to decide for themselves. Whew, I'm noticing my mind's really wandering a lot here. Or, you know, to, to be aware of their own distraction or mind wandering and say, I have a strategy to help me with that. I'm going to take a break. And for some kids, it might be a physical break. For other kids, it might be um, a meditation break. For other kids, it might be I need to sketch for a minute. Even what the break looks like could be individualized to allow kids yeah. to independently re-engage with their work. So this idea of individual variety within a large class and, and how do we set kids up to self-monitor and then self-regulate, um, I think could be really powerful to set them up for their future success as independent learners. So if we're teaching kids how to be flexible with their learning environment and some of these strategies um, in their mind, we can still teach the content and go through some of these, you know, curricular resources, but provide the choice and opportunities to grow those self-regulation skills in a different way. Kind of reminding me of that strategy in the reading strategies book 2.0. It's um, in the engagement chapter, take a break. I don't think we use, use the word reflection, but that I feel like is the underlying practice of um, developing self-regulation and attention and like giving space for reflection and just asking like, how did that go? Or what felt good? What worked? What didn't? And I just feel like those are such powerful questions you can ask students at the end of like trying a new routine. When you tried a new lesson, just asking them, how'd it go? I, I find that to be so powerful and um, insightful. Like the kids always have something, something to say and I always learn from them. Yeah. And I, you're making me um, just think more and more about how important that the routine and structure of regularly meeting and talking with kids is really important not to lose because we have to scaffold them into that kind of thinking. Right. And I was just thinking too, when you were mentioning the engagement chapter, like the uh, 2.11 plan goal focused stopping places seem to overlap with what he was saying around note-taking sort of um you know it's like plant you know think about your goal set stopping places with sticky notes pause and practice a strategy it's kind of like that scaffold to set kids up for purposeful note-taking in a small way when he mentioned you know why would you want to take notes while you're reading you know because some kids like don't see the point in it and they really don't want to do that and it actually offers them a way to stay focused. But if kids can see the connections between like, oh, if I jot, it's going to help me remember this. And if I have a goal to focus my jotting, that's even better. And then if I get to talk with somebody, that's even better. 
Well, you just made me think, I'm wondering if it's like this idea of agency versus compliance. So when students are doing note-taking, are we asking them to do it for the teacher? Are we having them fill out a worksheet or a graphic organizer that's pre-printed? Um, if so, I wonder if they might feel like it's a waste of time um, because they're just truly being compliant and like doing school, going through the motions. But what he was talking about and kind of some of these ideas you're pulling through the Reading Strategies book is about putting that ownership into the kids' hands so that they have agency over their learning. And just to focus on purpose, why am I doing this? To constantly be asking yourself as a teacher, have I, have I made it clear to kids why this is helpful or what purpose there is behind this particular practice? It makes me think about the research around, um, when we look at the research around strategy instruction, an important layer to making sure strategies are successful or helpful is a conditional knowledge. When do I apply this strategy? Why do I apply this strategy? It can't just be because my teacher taught it to me, so I have to now go do it. It can't just be because it's being graded or my teacher said to write three post-it notes. There has to be a, a purpose and the condition in which that particular strategy is most effective. So um, it's a good reminder of that, I think. Mm -hmm. And what about, do you think what he said about note-taking applies to like teacher note-taking? Like hmm. when, so I'm only asking because I did this um, thing with a group of teachers where we just practiced listening. Like we borrowed um, your suggestion at the beginning of the conversation chapter about, you know, making the T-chart and like one side you listen for like comprehension, what kids are doing comprehension-wise well. And then on the other side, um, what are they doing conversationally? Um, and it was just so fascinating to compare notes you know, I kind of left it open-ended and I, I wrote down sort of like what I heard and then we compared. It was just interesting, like um, setting up purpose for note-taking even with teachers taking notes uh, with students. I love that you brought up teacher note-taking and connection. I didn't even thought about that. And now my mind is like, oh my gosh, how can I rethink note-taking when working with students and modeling this for teachers, especially because that's sometimes the hardest part about conferring is making sure we're taking notes that will actually transform our teaching for the next conference. And so I, I just love that you brought that up. Which is maybe why listening through the lens of a student's goal when note taking, right? If I'm, if I'm sitting down next to a student and I know this is a child who's working on a goal of understanding characters better. So as I listen to what she says, I'm going to be filtering it through the lens of which things that she's saying are about character. And mm -hmm. then I can choose to either, depending on the kind of note taker I am, record verbatim some key things that she says so I can go back, look it over, organize it, see the connections between, and then make a decision. Or I can be listening and on the spot evaluating the quality of her response to the character and jot down some takeaways. What did I notice her strengths and what kind of tips I think bringing this research into professional learning with teachers and having them think about noting is a great idea, Dina. I love it. Yeah. Lainey, what were you thinking? So switching to kids taking notes around complex texts, um, I think it would be really interesting. I was actually looking at, I tend to go to the main idea chapter, but I was looking at the text features chapter as a way, I mean, there were so many in here that appealed to me as I was listening to him. Um, let's see. Uh, 
uh, oh, 10.12, um, 10.13, 14 and 15, all as ways to help get into that really dense text and do that harder work that he called um, coordinating meaning across paragraphs um, is really hard. So I think using some strategies and comparing notes, even as a small group, could be really helpful for kids to see different ways that I can interact with, gain meaning from, and um, record my learning in these texts. Lots of lots to take away, lots of work to do. Lots to take away. I, I look forward to having more conversations about that interview as well as his book uh, together as a team. Thanks so much for joining me today, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. And thank you for listening. Please support the To The Classroom podcast by sharing, subscribing, or leaving a review on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Learn more about me and my work at my website, www.jenniferceravallo.com.